Welcome to What Were You Thinking? Today I am joined by Tobias Elwood, Chair of the Defence Select Committee and former Defence and Foreign Office Minister. We talk about the people, places and experiences that have impacted his thinking. And one person in particular, former US Defence Secretary Jim Mattis. We also discuss foreign policy and the threats that we are facing. Tobias does not hold his punches. This episode is supported by BAE Systems, one of the largest UK employers. With £3 billion in export sales from the UK annually, BAE Systems has a central role in the engineering and manufacturing fabric of the country, supporting 124,000 high-value jobs across the UK through a supply chain of some 6,000 companies. BAE Systems works extensively with its supply chain, SMEs, regional partners and universities to deliver long-term economic growth and productivity, technological know-how and also to develop skills. BAE Systems helps its customers to stay a step ahead when protecting people and national security, critical infrastructure and vital information. They are using their knowledge and technologies to reduce the environmental impacts of their activities and have set themselves the target of achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions across their operations by 2030. Tobias, welcome to What Were You Thinking? Thank you so much for joining the show. To kick off, I thought we should delve straight into the people that have impacted your life. So is there any person or are there any people that really stand out looking, reflecting back on your life? Well, firstly, thank you for inviting me. Delighted uh, to be with you. Uh, this is such a tough question. We're all influenced by people around us, but two do jump out at me. Uh, firstly, is my art teacher. I loved art. I was passionate about it when I was at school. I grew up in Vienna. Um, my father was a diplomat uh, with the United Nations, and I went to the international school there. And Herb Holtzinger was my art teacher, and he was a big, lively, enthusiastic American, the sort of quarterback-looking guy, you know, chiseled jaw, uh, but a delight. Um, and I wanted to be him, um, essentially. I, he, he, everything about him was, was, was fantastic. What was really interesting is that physically, he, was, he said when he was young, he wasn't particularly strong, but he changed himself. He lifted buckets of sand to make his arms strong. And, and I copied that. I, I, I tried to do all these sort of things to boost myself to be more like him. He also was interested in politics. He did lots of caricatures of political characters. And this was the day of Jimmy Carter. And what happened then with that uh, move to uh, release the Iranian, um, the hostages held by Iran, if you remember that, ill-fated mission. And we ended up talking about all these things. So it, it, it sowed a seed of interest in current affairs, which was, which was fantastic. But he was also a conscientious objector during Vietnam. And I thought, how could you not want to serve your country? And again, this was really interesting to see his answer. He said, absolutely, I'd willing to do that. Second World War, I'd have been there straight away, as my father was. But on this occasion, he questioned the validity of US uh, going into Vietnam. And uh, as we saw in the longevity of it, this was a war that was never going to be one, a huge loss of American lives. And wisely, you know, Britain decided to opt that out. So it made me think about being in the military, but also representing your country, doing something as honorable as that 
but also questioning where, you know, who makes the decisions as to why you go to war, which of course aren't made by the military, they're made by politicians. So in a roundabout way, it was actually introducing me perhaps to the world of politics without me realizing it. Amazing. And so what, what, what age were you when you decided to go into the army? What was the journey for you? Well, you know, I was at Loughborough University, which is all about sports. You know, you don't go there to study. You go there to actually participate. I played volleyball at quite a high uh, level. I did engineering, design and technology. Uh, but I also joined the officer training corps. Um, whilst I was at Loughborough, I became president of the Students' Union, which seems an odd thing to do, perhaps, for a conservative, eventual conservative MP. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I had a, a, a great time. Stephen Twig, if you remember that MP, he was the head of the National Union of uh, <laughs> Students then, uh, whilst I was in charge of Loughborough. And because I'd done that job, I was then invited to actually go and see Anderson Consulting, the uh, Procter & Gamble, all these curious companies. And I had no intention, perhaps, to originally of actually pursuing their job. And I remember meeting somebody at Procter & Gamble who was in charge of toothpaste, um, uh, some form of toothpaste. And it was just at that time when the two colours were coming out the tube at the same time. And I went into his office and he was ex-army. He had been in the artillery. And he had all these prototype uh, tubes all around his desk. And he was trying to encourage me to join the company. It was my third interview then. Uh, easy money, you know, decent job. And I looked at him. I said, this is your life, isn't it? Toothpaste tubes. And, I, and he said, yeah, it, it is. And I thought, I'm not ready to sit in front of a desk trying to promote different colored toothpaste coming out of a tube. I need to do something else. <laughs> so in the OTC, I'd come across the Royal Green Jackets as one of the regiments, a, a uh, very much a thinking regiment, thinking officers and soldiers. Um, and I looked around, I actually uh, qualified to join the parachute regiment and they just seemed a little bit too crazy for me. Uh, elite soldiers, no doubt about it, huge respect. Um, but I joined the Royal Green Jackets and never regretted it. And that was my introduction to the armed forces, not ready to sit down in front of a desk wanting to see the world a little bit. And uh, also whilst I was at... Uh, uh, at school, I became very involved in the Boy Scouts. I'm very much an outdoors person. You know, I developed some leadership qualities and so forth. And I think this was a natural progression from them. I thoroughly enjoyed the officer training corps. My recommendation is to anybody at university, if you're unsure what to do, the OTC gives you skills that you're never going to learn you know, in the lecture hall. Yeah, I often think maybe I should take some time out and just learn some discipline by... Uh... <laughs> by getting some army experience um so that's an interesting story about someone who you encountered quite early on in your life are there any people later on that that have impacted your thinking yeah I, i'm very fortunate to meet uh, an incredible man uh, general jim mattis who eventually became the defense secretary for uh, under president um, trump and he was actually responsible um, for uh, the um, uh, part of the, the, the uh, US military and had cause to go to uh, Afghanistan and, on a number of occasions. And, and because we'd become friends, he then invited me to, to tag along. In fact, there was one occasion where he called very uh, early, um, or sorry, very late in the day to say, uh, can you come along? I'm, we're doing a handover from uh, General um, Dunford uh, to General Dunford from General Allen. 
um, in Kabul, ISAF headquarters. I'm going along there. Would you like to be my guest? I can stop off at Bryce Norton, pick you up on the way from the United States. We'll head out to Afghanistan. It'll be an incredible event. And I said, let me look at my diary. Of course, it's clear. Pick me up in three weeks' time. I made the fatal mistake of uh, not giving it to my uh, team to then put in my diary because I was then on a Friday night. I was at a black tie event actually in uh, um, uh, on Park Lane, and I kept getting this call from uh, Major Rodriguez. I didn't know it was him at the time, but it was a long number, and I kept ignoring it. And eventually, I I I, I put my ear to the phone and leant down from my seat you know speeches were taking place at this time in the black tie then a big charity fundraiser for africa and i said hello and he says all right this is major rodriguez we're on finals from bryce norton uh looking forward to picking you up in uh in, in about an hour's time uh, just checking everything's okay and what had happened is is that i was invited to join at uh, what i thought was saturday evening at, uh, at, at midnight when actually it was Friday midnight. So I was 20, I said, you're, you're early, you're, you're a day early. He says, uh, sir, I can assure you, we're, we're about to land at Bryce Norton and we, we want to pick you up. And I said, uh, right, uh, a bit of confusion here. I thought you were arriving tomorrow. Listen, I'm going to jump in my car, head up to Bryce Norton now. And uh, if, uh, if, if I'm there, fine, I'll pick you, uh, you, you, you pick me up. If not, you're going to have to go. I don't want to delay the general. So I then left uh, the, uh, the, the Park Lane events, headed straight down to Westminster. I have a grad bag, which has got some stuff in it, still wearing my black tie um, and my passport, jumped into my car and then flew up to Bryce Norton, which is Oxfordshire way. Uh, got about six points on my license going through a couple of speed cameras got caught by the police, in fact, doing too fast in Oxfordshire. And I then explained, listen, there's a general waiting on the tarmac in Bryce Norton. Um, I need to get there. And he said, listen, uh, I sympathise with you. I'm going to let you go. Just, you know, by this time, it was about after midnight. Um, take it easy. You know, you need to get there. And uh, I arrived at the gate of Bryce Norton, expecting an awful lot of paperwork to get in into an RAF base. And the, there was an old gentleman guarding the gate. And he said, are you the MP? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, they're waiting for you. Just head that way. So I arrived and there was this uh, sergeant major standing outside the terminal uh, with, the, uh, with the, um, the, the air commodore for the base. This was now one o'clock in the morning. The air commodore for the entire base clearly wasn't allowed to go to bed until this four-star general that was on the tarmac had taken off. The sergeant major looks at me and says, park your car anywhere, sir, and give me the bloody keys. So <laughs> I then <laughs> grabbed my bag, said, sorry, sorry, sorry. I walked through the terminal. Uh, customs then said, wave me a passport, which I then did. They said, carry on. There was actually a battalion sitting on their rucksacks, waiting to go out on a C-17 Globemaster aircraft to Afghanistan, who then looked at me peculiarly because I was still wearing my black tie. <laughs> I'm then sweating, really panicky that I'm delaying Jim Mattis on the tarmac. We then go through to the VIP uh, area, then into another car, drive out to his aircraft. And I'm now feeling awfully embarrassed. 
And then I'm walking up the, 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 the stairs to the aircraft. Jim Mattis then comes out uh, and sees me at the top, from the top, and says, ah, James Bond, I presume. <laughs> so, so, sorry, I didn't come on board. And uh, everybody gives me a clap, a round of applause, because I'd actually made it after this massive cock-up. Um, they had to refuel. We were 20 minutes late. Thankfully, it all worked out. And here, there we headed to Afghanistan. But sorry, I wow. digress. That's no, it. that's amazing. That's such a brilliant, brilliant story. And I can see that being the start of um, a really yeah. nice relationship. It's often those bizarre yeah. moments that are quite bonding, aren't they? I mean, yeah. Jim Matters is a very interesting um I mean, obviously, for like so many different reasons, but, you know, having then met him and spent quite a bit of time with him, how do you think he has impacted your thinking and politics? Yeah, you know, whenever any war movie that you see, a modern war movie, there's always this tension between the military that want to go very hawkish and, and, and create a military solution and then politicians that are trying to hold them back. And he's that sort of bond between the two. He recognises that no situation you're going to solve militarily alone. There needs to be political dialogue. You need to take the will of the people with you. There's no point in actually defeating the enemy, leaving a vacuum and not enabling the locals to then somehow look after themselves. Because otherwise, in today's day and age, without unconditional surrender, the enemy regroup and they come back in, you know, insurgency come back into to, 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 to the villages and towns and, and dominate. And we see that happening again right now, unfortunately, in Afghanistan. He recognised that and he recognised the importance of the aid programmes, of governance, of discussions, in addition to the military. He saw the military as providing a, an umbrella of security for which activity must take place underneath to get your solution that you're after. The military activity alone is not enough. And that's a rare accolade for um, you know, the military to actually have. And that's why I you know, very much listened to, to his views. And, uh, he's he's you know, turned into an absolute um, uh, important friend and, and influencer on me and how we, Britain, who has a reputation of actually having this important balance, which is why I see the aid budget being cut, as actually uh, you know, a diminishing of our soft power, when our soft power and half power must work together to influence the positive result. Yeah, and his, yeah, his famous quote is, the less you spend on aid, the more you spend on bullets. Absolutely right. Simply put, uh, a recognition that if you take away your aid, you lose your influence. You know, well-spent aid helps with education. It improves governance. It actually then makes better decision-making, leads to prosperity, in fact, which Britain can then benefit from. Take away that aid, you leave a vacuum, which can either easily be filled either by extremism or indeed by, we're seeing latterly, by China or Russia, that then fill in those aid programmes and they then pursue a very different agenda than we would. So this year, obviously, COVID-19 has caused um, the government to have to make very many difficult decisions. But one of them is, is that cut to the aid budget. Now, they're saying it's temporary and that they will reinstate it to 0.7 when they can. Um, but everything you've just mentioned obviously shows the, the wider picture and you and you mentioned Russia and China uh, stepping into the sort of the void or vacuum that we might be creating. What do you think Global Britain and the integrated review that's just come out and the Foreign Office needs to do to counter that and, and make sure that that vacuum doesn't get filled? 
I mean, it's such an interesting point, and this is entirely my focus on or what I'm trying to encourage the government to recognize is the changing world around us. The next 10 years are going to be so bumpy. And what happens in the next 10 years, in my view, will actually cement the rest of the century, because we're seeing this power change, this shift from um, uh, US to China, and China operating a very different set of rules uh, than the West itself. Authoritarianism is on the rise. So what we do, how we conduct ourselves is so critical. And we've been a bit risk averse. We've been a bit distracted. COVID is one example, Brexit another. Stuff has been happening around us, which means that it's a very multipolar world, a much more complicated world as well. And Britain has to ask itself, do we follow? Do we watch what's happening? Or do we step forward as we've done in the past and take a more important leadership role? Now, I'm afraid life wasn't the West lost some impetus and credibility under Donald Trump. His America first approach damaged what the West stood for, what we believed in, what we're willing to defend. And Biden is trying to regroup. He's trying to say, absolutely, there are problems around the world that if we don't try and solve them in, a, in an amicable way, they will then grow and become bigger problems that we then have to uh, connect uh, with. So there's an opportunity for Britain, particularly as we host the G7 and the COP26, to step forward. My concern is that that penny hasn't dropped yet, just how dangerous the world is and what's happening around us. You know, we are very much, as all countries are, focusing on the, uh, you know, acting on the pandemic, and that's perfectly understandable. But this cut in aid budget was actually more about winning the hearts and minds of the red wall seats, if I'm honest about it, than it was about actually recognizing uh, our support and the necessity to help beyond our shores. Now, I'm, I'm in politics. I recognize that if you're not it, staying in power, if you don't retain power, you can't affect the change that you actually want. If we wanted to actually com continue committing to 0.7, we could have easily done that. The scale of borrowing that we've got now, this is next to nothing in comparison. This is all done about messaging to say we can look after Britain first. So I'm afraid, you know, I really encourage this government now to recognize that the elections have just you know, happened. We've done well. You know, uh, but the Prime Minister has never been stronger in his entire time now. Um, now's the time to, to lift your head above the parapet, recognize the changes around the world that are taking place, and ask ourselves what we could do, what we must do, uh, and where the world will go if we fail to step forward. Because if we don't, then uh, look where the world might go. Ask yourself a simple question Do you think the world will be? a more dangerous place over the next five years or a safer place. And I think most people will say more dangerous. Now, if that's the case, then 2.2% budget on defense is not enough. We have a peacetime budget and that's why our hard power, much as we've started to protect ourselves, become more resilient on the cyber side, you know, we're cutting frigates, we're cutting 10,000 um, uh, troops from our, our armed forces. Even uh, we're cutting back on the F-35s. In the Gulf War, we had 36 squadrons in the RAF of fast jets. Today, we're down to six. So if we are serious about playing a role on the international stage of retaining that position as the UN General Assembly, sorry, the UN Security Council that was a permanent member, then we have to up our game. Mm. So you mentioned a few examples, the frigates, the F-35s. Um, but what else would you like to see this government implement? And, and also linked to that, what opportunity is there for the UK 
to step up and put its head above the parapet, as you say? Well, the first is, is to recognise what the, uh, the immediate threat is locally. And I think that's Russia's uh, um, adventurism. And that needs to be held into check. Russia has uh, illustrated that if there's a vacuum, it will fill it in the Crimea, in Georgia, in eastern Ukraine, in Syria. Um, and therefore, we do need to show that there are conventional forces that we need to support. We need to shift that, uh, you know, the line of, of defense that we had in Germany to the east um, and, and, and be strong because that will be respected by Russia. And also recognize that this is Putin's Russia, not Russia itself. If we don't have a long-term strategy to encourage Russia to remain um, Western-looking, we will drive Russia towards China, which is not a an obvious relationship. You know, it, it, when during Mao's uh, era, he actually had to tell uh, the capital city to prepare for a nuclear attack from Russia, and this is you know only a matter of decades ago. And here we are now, seeing Russia and China get closer and closer together. That is not an obvious relationship. The Russia would prefer to, to look to the West, towards us, towards Europe. We need a way of finessing that, because otherwise the bigger geostrategic challenge of China will become even more immense. And that's the bipolar world that I'm concerned about, is that the, the rise of China ensnaring countries into its one belt, one road programs, its technological programs, uh, its debt, uh, does mean that countries um, are forced to look either to the West or to the East. That, for me, is the face of the Cold War that is now ensuing over the next couple of decades. So we need to strengthen what the Western counterweight is, recognizing that China is going to grow, but we need to abide by sensible international rules. And that's where the G7 comes in. Because when you add the G7, along with Australia, Korea, and India, you get over half the world's GDP. That's a powerful starting point to say, let's reestablish what those trading rules are, what the security rules are, and then encourage other organizations and groupings and countries to then abide by those rules, including China. And the difference between the last Cold War and this is the economy. That's China's Achilles heel, because without trading with the rest of the world, China can't continue to grow as it needs to. So I think some interesting challenges there, but the penny hasn't dropped. We've not had that Sputnik moment as we had with, with the Soviet Union or what China's actual intentions are. We keep hoping they're going to mature into this global responsible citizen. And I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. You say the penny hasn't dropped, but over the last year, there does seem to be a lot more noise being made by conservative MPs about China and, and probably other parties as well, but I'm most familiar with conservative voices. It seems that it is slightly moving, but what, when do you expect, you know, what, what do you think it's going to take for that penny to drop to the extent that more action and the government and the foreign office will actually start implementing more stuff? You're, you're absolutely right. The language that we're hearing from both government and indeed the backbenchers is far more resolute in recognizing what China is doing. It's treatment of the Uyghur minorities, it's actions in Hong Kong with the changing of the laws there. The, the, you know, the two systems, one country has now gone out the window, clearly. Um, I'm afraid, though, that we, we are responding um, tactically to situations. We don't have a strategic uh, overview an agreement, a strategy as to how to deal 
with China and where this all goes. And it could very well be that we're going to have to wait for an acute event, whether it involves in Taiwan or mm. indeed uh, you know, something else, which eventually allows everybody to recognize that you can't continue playing this um, role of appeasing China on the one side and then, um, uh, then trying to hold them to account on the other. China recognizes strength and they respect strength. At the moment, they're taking full advantage of the fact that the West is collectively weak. We are absent in what we uh, all agree in, on our approach. So uh, China is able to pluck us off one by one. Australia criticizes China because of the outbreak of, of the pandemic, asking for an international investigation, and immediately tariffs are thrown onto Australia. So how does the rest of the world react? We don't say anything. You've even got New Zealand leaving the Five Eyes community because it feels trade with China is too important. Now, where's the counterweight to that? Why aren't we standing up? This is one of our closest allies, New Zealand, and they're making such a fundamental decision as to leave the Five Eyes community. Yeah, that is huge. I mean, it's it's interesting because that that in any other time, probably that in itself could be that that big moment or you know, the situation in Uyghur or, as you say, the threats to Taiwan or the conversations and the concerns around Huawei and, and sort of, you know, the, the, what that represents more broadly towards cyber threats. And yet these things are being trip-fed and, and it, to your point, nothing's happening. And do you think that's largely because we're being distracted by COVID-19 or do you think it's something more fundamental? Yes, I think it's it's a combination of both. Certainly, COVID has in, affected the whole world in retreating from global exposure. You know, the, the, the sudden bun fight for PPE around the world was a great example of that. Um, and uh, how uh, the world was caught out. In even today, you've got ships quarantined in the in the Far East, not able to make the journey across here. So all of us are looking at ways to be able to be more resilient. But that, of course, takes us into the wrong, the wrong direction. It, it moves us away from globalization. And that's to the benefit of authoritarian you know, countries. There's a 1930s feel to the world right now. You know, the inst global institutions are not strong. You've got power bases growing, militarization taking place, a lack of an international leader. I mean, Biden's come back in, but ultimately there is a lack of Western cohesion as to what we should do about it and of course an economic recession as well these are very very dangerous and volatile times i'm afraid so moving on to place what place uh, or places have left a you know have impacted your thinking or, or politics even well the place i've chosen is actually a, um a, a seat a swivel chair in uh, mm. in the hq um in camp bastion in helmand uh, yeah. and because people like Jim Mattis and, and other uh, actually U.S. generals have to say. Um, I was able to visit Afghanistan about every six to uh, nine months over the last um, and last few years. I did that actually for a personal reason. I, I sadly lost my brother in the Bali bomb bombing. Mm. And they he was killed by an affiliate of the Al-Qaeda. And I was very interested to learn what we are doing about it collectively to take on Al-Qaeda, to take on the hijacking of a faith, uh, which then meant that young people who didn't have a clue about what they were doing thought they were going to get uh, a fast track to paradise by killing people like my brother, who was a teacher. He was the deputy head 
in an international school in Saigon, interestingly, in Vietnam. So I then visited Afghanistan to see how we would, were doing um, and the history of this country and how it mapped in with extremism. And if you've seen that film, Charlie Wilson's War, you know, it shows how we, the, the West, the Americans, actually assisted the Mujahideen to take on the Russians, the Soviets, to flush them out. And they eventually did leave. And as the final line, you know, that brilliant film with uh, Tom Hanks, uh, he then wants to invest in Afghanistan. He wants to put money into education and things like that. And the decision by the Americans was, no, 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 we won, like a baseball match. Let's go home. And of course, you then left the Mujahideen in charge or uh, certainly resolute in wanting to move Afghanistan forward. And from the Mujahideen came the Taliban, which then gave space to Al-Qaeda and the rest is history. We then go in after 9-11 and what do we do? Um, and my concern is, is that sitting in that swivel chair, so many times I was presented with maps, heat maps showing where the Taliban were, what we were doing, how our programs were, were moving forward and, and life was changing for the Afghanis. Fast forward to today, and we know that we are now retreating. We're now you know, removing our troops because the Americans are leaving as well. And the country is, is destined to another very horrible civil war. We never had the discussions with the Taliban. And my biggest concern when I think back at all those discussions I had with leaders, military leaders and others, sitting in, in getting briefings, is where did it all go wrong? If we don't understand why it went wrong, colleagues of mine in Westminster, the next time we have to, we are invited to send troops to a hostile environment, we'll probably say, no, thank you. Don't want to go there. I'm haunted by Afghanistan. Let's say Yemen got a peace deal, a political solution, and they needed an international UN peacekeeping force. Britain should be the first country to step forward. Why? Because our history there, we ran half of it, you know, for, for a couple of centuries. And yet the chances are that colleagues will probably say no. And my concern is that we don't understand what mistakes we made in Afghanistan. And I can think of two straight away. Back in, you know, the, the 9-11 took place September 2001. By October, we had actually taken over Kabul and the country the Americans had. And John Simpson, you might recall, walks through Kabul and for, for the BBC as if he liberated it himself. In December, they had a lawyer jerker. They got everybody together to say, what are we going to do about running this country? And Karzai had been protected and he was the man identified as the best Western, you know, uh, favorable character to lead the country. The Taliban made a request to Donald Rumsfeld or to the Americans. Can I join this lawyer jagger? Can I participate in it? The Taliban. And Donald Rumsfeld said, no, go away. We're, we're the winners here. You, can, uh, you are the, 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 the defeated. You're not part of this. How things would have been different had that taken place. And the other fundamental schoolboy error was over the next five years, from 2001 to 2005, which was the window of opportunity to rebuild Afghanistan, we managed to train just 26,000 Afghan armed forces. 
So if you wanted to hand over responsibility of security to the Afghanis, all we did was train 26,000. That's simply not enough. Mm. We were scared to allow them to run their own affairs. So there was no police officers to run, and there was no, uh, likewise, there was no armed forces as well. This gave space for the Taliban to go into Pakistan, which was another concern as well as to what happened there, rearm, retrain, regroup, come back in, and then it all went downhill from there. If my colleagues in Parliament don't understand why these things went wrong, then we will not have the courage to recognize that we can learn from that and make sure we don't repeat those mistakes when were we to go into Yemen. Or indeed, we've just sent troops into Mali now. Goodness knows where that one's going to go. Yeah. So object, the final of a, the, the third, the third red Fred question of what were you thinking? Um, what object that you've owned or have encountered that has had an impact on your thinking and life and politics and all the rest of it? Well, this is a really interesting question. There's so many things, but one of them has been fundamentally given me opportunity. And that's the fact that I have a second passport. Uh, I have an American passport. So that object itself has been really fundamental in allowing me to explore and build relationships with such an important ally. And if you come into politics to promote Britain and encourage Britain to play a greater role on the international stage, the best way we can do that is to influence our closest security ally, the United States. That's why they like us. We bring a bit of might to the table, a bit of hard power, but it's our understanding of the world around us. You know, don't charge in to uh, Calais to open up that Western Front in the Second World War. Try Normandy because the beaches are a little bit, you know, flatter there. They're, there's not so much uh, uh, the Germans. It's a bit longer to get there, but it's a better surprise. Right, fantastic, and that's how the special relationship really came about. Is because of our reach, our understanding from the you know the Middle East, the Camel Corps, to you know our stretch, the, our history, our connectivity with the world. Because of our history, we have a better understanding and therefore can offer solutions. It goes to our soft power discussion that we had earlier. You know, because our grasp of the world around us is phenomenal because of our diplomatic reach. And having that American passport allows me to get into doors, I have to say. Um, I, I'm also an Eagle Scout. I went up through the American Scout system. So when I say I've got an American passport, I'm an Eagle Scout, immediately I find that the, a bond develops with the US mm. uh, politicos and military people, uh, which has been absolutely fabulous. It's allowed me to, like Jim Mattis is a great example, and, uh, but others, people like Tom Cotton or Patrick Leahy, senators in, in the US Senate become very close good friends of, of mine um, and I'm honoured and privileged to do that and I think it's partly because uh, of my dual nationality. Mm. Well as a fellow dual national I can relate to that I mean, it, it does um, yeah there is that just that trust and that bond that I imagine wouldn't um, wouldn't exist so that, that's interesting and, and you you visit America a lot well obviously now you can't travel but in normal times. Yes I do about every I try and get there about every, you know, once or twice a year. Be right, because of COVID, uh, it's been very limiting. I hope, I mean, 60% of the adults over there have now been vaccinated. So yeah. I do hope in one area that we may see opening up such yeah. an important, um, uh, crucial bond that we have with, you know, and go back to all the challenges that we face today. It was the Atlantic Charter. You know, it was that discussion between Roosevelt and Churchill. 
during the Second World War that led to the foundations of so many of the other big organizations, the United Nations, World Trade Organization, IMF, and so on. And we need, a, I believe, another Atlantic Charter 2.0. And that's something that I hope Boris Johnson you know, can now think of, uh, can contemplate with Joe Biden. Interesting. Now, some quick fire questions to finish off the episode. Um, you have lots of different and various experiences in, in politics as um, a backbencher, as a minister, as a chair of a select committee. You must have, as every politician does, encountered lots of surreal, bizarre experiences the thick of it moments, as we like to refer to them. Do any spring to mind? Uh, yeah, I've had some, some interesting um, discussion. I remember one of the, um, uh, my worst events was in the, in the chamber with uh, John Burkow, uh, when I said that he was the, um, the antidote to um, verbal diarrhea. Uh, I, I mixed up antidote and anecdote. Um, and I didn't realize I'd done it. And uh, so, yeah, everybody <laughs> around me just burst into laughter. And Adam Ifriet, who's a very good friend of mine, um, was in the bench in front. He could hardly contain himself. And he then explained as well what he did under his breath. But I felt awful. And it's, um, <laughs> it's funny how it knocks your confidence for a little while. It's a very strange environment, the, the, the chamber, because it's, it's tiered. So when you stand up, you really do feel quite exposed. Mm. A lot easier to speak at the dispatch box, but no, that was one event that um, that sent me. Uh, I'll never forget. <laughs> so be careful when you're trying to be clever that uh, you don't make mistakes. <laughs> and um, if you had to pick your favourite non-conservative politician, who who would that be? Uh, non-conservative politician. Yeah, I mean, I suppose Joe Cox would, was was the one I got on mm. with very very well. Um, she there is an awful lot of, of tribal politics that takes place. And sometimes, particularly on the international subjects, there's more of a synergy uh, with, with what you actually uh, try and achieve. Um, and she was brilliant. And, you know, I, I was minister for the Middle East. She would call an urgent question. Uh, and then she would sort of apologise privately afterwards for calling me to the chamber. But I was actually pleased that she did that. You know, her interest and i think this is so important with parliamentarians is that you remember the purpose as to why you came into politics uh you know is it just to uh, cause problems for the another political party or is it to take advance you know britain into a, a a better place you know to invigorate britain to do more and she absolutely was was the latter rather than the, the former some people in politics just live you know to have a go at the other side and that, that is part of policy. You can't deny that. Certainly, Prime Minister's questions, there's an awful lot about it. But ultimately, on the bigger issues, such as Syria, you know, what we could do there uh, far more and more, I, I do believe that we need more political courage. And that can co only come about when there's support on both sides of the chamber. And she was always there willing to, do, to give that. And finally, what is the best advice you've ever been given that you would like to pass on to myself and the listeners? Um, I think the... Um, the best advice I received, I, when I was chair, when I was uh, president of Loughborough Students Union, I uh, visited my local MP. I had an inkling and in I might go into politics one day. And his name was Stephen Durrell. Uh, and he was the Loughborough Member of Parliament. And uh, we had a chat and, and I said, listen, I'm interested in politics. And he said, well, well, come down. And he was Chief Secretary to the Chair, I think, at the time. 
And I sat in his very grand seats and we talked about what to do. And he said, don't go to central office uh, so, and get a research job, get some life experience, go away and become an expert in something. So when you stand up in the house, people will then listen to you. When your name appears on the monitor around parliament, speaking on the subject, they might choose in, tune in or even come in to the chamber. And that then gives you something to offer uh, rather than being a generalist and trying to cover all subjects. It gives you a focus of what you can potentially achieve in, in, in life. And if I have one request to the WIPS office is to better, um, I think, uh, uh, allow that to, to, to develop. Let people become specialists. I remember Rory Stewart was diffid all the way, internationalist, written books on Afghanistan. And he got sent to prisons to be our prisons minister. What does he know about prisons? Now, in nine months, he learned so much about it because that's the character he is. Mm. But in any business or even academia, whatever, you, you, you take people, give them experience and allow them to accumulate it. Esther McVeigh is a, a rare example of for example, that she stayed in different subjects that mostly to do with social welfare and benefits and so forth and, and becomes an expert in that. And I hope we can do more of that because what I see too much is the churn of people coming in, being a defense procurement minister, and then five minutes later being sent somewhere else. It takes a year to understand defense procurement. And as soon as you've got it and you're any good, you get whisked off somewhere else. That shouldn't be the way it should be. So going back to what I've said about it, develop a sense of expertise, but likewise the whips office, they need to advance that. Don't forget we're representing British, you know, uh, Britain on, when it comes to politics. Uh, we want the very best. We want the best to come in. The gene pool of talent that, come, that government is selected from comes from members of parliament. So if you come in with experience, you should be then allowed to be able to use that experience to your benefit, benefit of the nation. That's great. Thank you so much, Tobias, for coming on. Thank you very much indeed. Absolute delight. Thank you for listening. Now, if you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And of course, tell all your friends and family about it. If you have any questions in particular you want me to put to guests or you have any special requests, please let me know and just get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. And of course, I love hearing your personal stories which people, places and objects, love the objects, what weird objects have inspired your thinking and life and possibly politics. Let me know. Get in touch on Twitter with hashtag WWYT or just tag me at Laura Round. I'd love to hear from you and can't wait till the next episode. See you then. Bye.